0: What a great joy it is for us to once again open the Word of God together. I'll ask you this morning to take your Bibles and turn in them to our study of the book of Jude. It has been a rather revealing study for us as we have been studying over the past several weeks, as it has brought to light the reality of how much truth really matters. We all intellectually know that truth matters. We we all intellectually understand that in our own personhood. Um, I would assume that each of us, even here this morning, grew up in homes where truth was highlighted, truth was assumed and even pronounced as the standard for which you carried out life, or at least which you believed you were carrying out life. And if you think about it, this is the very reason why our world is in so much turmoil. The raging of mankind against others of mankind is because of that very reality. They are fighting because truth matters. Because truth actually is something. Because truth does exist. Truth does matter. And whether someone has the actual truth or not, each person is proclaiming a position that is based upon what they consider as truth. Why do they do that? Because truth matters. Truth matters for their own life, and truth matters for their own existence. And as important as that principle is for every person that walks on the face of this planet, the principle that truth matters is infinitely more important in the church. For you and I, the Christian. Why? Well, for the simple fact that God has created us to be relational beings. God in His sovereignty has created us to be in a relationship not only with one another, but with Him. And God has by His sovereign creative ways placed within the heart of every man, woman, and child the knowledge that He does exist. Whether man wants to willingly and rightfully acknowledge his existence or not, it is there the very conscience of mankind knows about God. Romans 1 clearly tells us that. And because man knows about God, because God has placed it in the heart of man, that knowledge, he, therefore, even in his sinful state, even in an unconverted state, operates within a relationship with God that is based upon actual truth. Whether man believes God, whether man actually acknowledges the existence of God or not, or on what scale he might acknowledge the existence of God, he is carrying out a relationship with God that is based upon actual truth. Why? Because God is truth. And therefore, if we get truth wrong, we get everything else wrong. Let me say that again. If we get truth wrong we get everything else wrong. We must get truth right. In other words, if our acknowledgement of what is truth is actually based upon a false reality claiming to be truth, then we are not, no matter how we may think or how we may act, we are not operating on truth. It is based upon a false claim to be truth, and therefore, because of that, our relationship with our fellow man will be warped, and most importantly, our relationship with God will be warped. So truth matters. Truth matters. Truth is that important. And from whom we derive our understanding of truth matters not just for the everyday life of those in this world, but infinitely more important for our lives as believers, our lives as Christians, those who comprise what we know to be the true church of Jesus Christ. Truth matters. This has been the message of the book of Jude since the beginning. His message is just that, truth matters. Maybe we should have just entitled our entire series that truth Matters because if we get truth wrong, then no one has any way of knowing if they ever are right with God. They have no way of knowing whether they can ever live or are living in a relationship with fellow man that is right. Jesus Christ himself proclaimed in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Therefore, there is no understanding of actual truth without knowing Jesus Christ, who is truth. And he, being truth personified, therefore means that everything he did and everything he said and everything he taught is truth. In other words, he identifies what life is to be and how it is to be lived. You want to know how you're supposed to live? You want to know how to interact with your relationship with other people? You want to know how to interact in the relationship with the God whom you know exists? The only way to know that is to go to Jesus Christ. To go and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Embrace what he said and embrace how he has said to live. When you do that, you will be operating in truth, and therefore we must know Him. Truth actually matters. In a day and age when people are saying truth doesn't matter, my truth and your truth, even though they might be opposites, can be okay. We can still tolerate one another in some strange, weird way of how we explain tolerance that truth really doesn't matter. Your truth and my truth can be okay. No, truth does matter. It does matter. And again, for you and I, it is eternally important. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the church is the pillar in support of the truth. The church is the pillar in support of the truth. In other words, the church upholds the truth. The church proclaims the truth. Paul said, we preach Christ. We proclaim the truth. And we follow the truth. Jesus himself, unless you deny yourself, even if you take up your cross daily, you cannot be my disciple. You must follow me. You must be my true disciple. So we proclaim the truth, we follow the truth, and we guard the truth even with our very lives, if necessary. And This is exactly what Jude has been saying to us all along. We must, he says in verse 3, contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith. When he says the faith, uh, the definite article be tar- before that word faith, he's not talking about salvation per se and, and faith in the sense of Jesus Christ. He's talking about all that it speaks of. He's talking about all that Jesus said, who Jesus is, all that he said and all that he has proclaimed of how we are lived. The body of truth that shows Christ body of truth that proclaims all that Christ is and so for us as christians we must contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints we must contend for the faith that has been delivered to the out ones to the church to those whom god has drawn to himself by his sovereign calling by to those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the truth, by faith in him, to those whose sins have been forgiven by the sacrificial death and substitution of Jesus Christ on their behalf, the one who paid the eternal penalty that we could never pay, we must contend for the truth that has been given to the living church of God. This is what Jude is saying. And so we need to ask the question this morning who is it that we are to be contending with? Who is it we are to be contending with? Well, certainly we could say it's the godless. The godless world in which we live, we are to be contending with them. The godless world does not acknowledge the truth about God that he has written on their hearts. They do not acknowledge God as Romans 1 says, he has placed in them the understanding that he is. They don't acknowledge them. And so we contend with them. As Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5, for we, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What fortresses is that, Paul? Well, we are destroying speculations. We, we are destroying every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. You see, this is the fortresses that we come against. Well, we don't go out there with with our our guns ablazing, if you will, in some kind of physical force. We don't we don't need to do that. We battle against speculations and things raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is he simply saying we are holding every thought, every speculation, every lofty idea accountable to the truth, to Christ. We take everything back to the truth, the once for all truth that has been delivered to us by the Spirit of God. This is what we do as Christians. This is contending for the truth. We, we contend to present a clear understanding of the truth. We take every thought captive to the living truth of Jesus Christ. We, we take it and we filter it through the scriptures to see what comes out. We don't take the scriptures and filter them through the ideologies and ideas and philosophies of men. No, we take those things and filter them through the truth. And when we do that, the world will hate us. When you take the truth and who is the truth and you proclaim that to a world that hates truth, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hates the truth. It hates the truth. And so we certainly contend against the world, but we also contend against some within the church. Shockingly enough, we must contend with some within the church. Why? Because there are some who come in disguise. They are wolves disguised as if they're sheep. They are evil, godless people. And they come into the church and they infiltrate the ranks of God's army through their own deception. Here's what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, second Timothy chapter three, verse thirteen. He said, But evil men will proceed. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. The word imposters in that verse means seducers. Evil men, they are seducers. In other words, they say what needs to be said in order to deceive. They seduce. They prey upon the weak. And why do they do this? Because they themselves are deceived. In fact, if you remember in our study of Second Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter said they will come in and secretly introduce destructive heresies. What is a heresy? A heresy is just a lie that looks like a duck, smells like a duck, but it's not a duck. In fact, heresies often come in the form of especially in our day and age, of subjective terminology. Terminology that's not concrete. Terminology that's not objective. Words that sound like this. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Probably that will happen, or probably that's the case, or sometimes, or potentially, or most likely, Those are all subjective terms. They're not objective terms. In other words, they are bendable. They're they're malleable. They they leave the door open for doubt. They leave the door open for shifting from one side to the other. They're like mercury as a substance. It's hard to put your finger on it. You can't pin it down. But objective terms leave no room for doubt. Objective terms are declarative. Objective terms have no shifting in them. Objective terms are concrete. They have absolute conclusions. They're unchanging. Truth is unchanging. Truth from yesterday is the same truth today and will be the same truth tomorrow. It does not change. In our day, we are bombarded with both subjective and objective and we must be differentiating between them. And most importantly the message we must differentiate between what is being conveyed and what ought to be conveyed because the false teacher will use the objective truth to give a subjective meaning. You say really how so? Like this. Surely God did not say you will die. Is that really what God says? Satan in Genesis chapter 3, speaking with Eve, was using the truth, the objective truth of God to cause doubt. But God's word is completely objective. It is absolute It does not change. It leaves no room for doubt. It is not subjective in any way. It is truth. Truth is objective. Truth is unbending. But the imposter is not of the truth. The imposter is of the lie. To them, truth does not matter as truth. What matters for the liar, for the imposter, is to make their own desire sound like truth. Or that truth has a lot of different avenues. And so over the past few weeks we have been seeing God's description of these kinds of people through the words of Jude. We have been focusing our attention on verses 8-13 through and I want to spend a A little more time here this morning, and it's fascinating as it unfolds for us. Follow along as I read these verses for us. Jude, verse 8, yet in the same manner these men. Of course, he's talking about the false. He's talking about the ones he described in verse 4. Certain persons having crept in unnoticed, those who long ago beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons that's who he's talking about. Yet in the same manner, these men, in the same manner of those who have gone before who he explained in verses five through seven, who have gone the same way as those before who faced the judgment of God. So these men in same manner also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael The archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, didn't dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These men, they revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It's a rather graphic description of those whom are outside the realm of truth. Outside the realm of Christendom in the sense of their own heart. This is a description of those who have infiltrated the church as wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude has told us in verse 4, they are ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. What does that mean? simply means that they twist the truth to fit their own desires. Take the truth and twist it and spin it and adjust it in order that they might fulfill their own fleshly desires, their own desires to do whatever it is their flesh desires to do, not a desire to obey God as God has laid out, but a desire to say, well, God is gracious, I can do whatever I want. They take the objective, unchanging doctrine of the grace of God and make it something that it is not. It is not a license to live any way you want. In other words, they twist the truth into untruth through redefining it, through outright denial of it. In fact, through calling it into question Calling into question the genuine meaning and the genuine and the right understanding of the truth. And what's the cause? What's the cause of all of that? Well, Jude tells us first that is because they rely on their own imaginations, verse 8. These men also by dreaming. Remember that from a few weeks ago? They're arrogant, and that arrogance is seen through the reality that they promote their own imaginations over the truth. They, just like those who have gone before through their own imaginations, their own dreams, they defile their flesh, they reject authority, they revile angelic beings in direct contrast to how angelic beings even would operate, as verse 9 tells us. So they're arrogant in their imaginations. But secondly... They are arrogant in their ignorance. They're arrogant in their ignorance. Verse 10 says, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals by these things, they are destroyed. We saw that also. What is Jude saying? Well, remember he had just told us that these kinds of people place much more weight upon their own imaginations. Upon what they dream up. Upon what they say and what they think. Rather than upon the Word of God. They rely upon their supposed visions that they receive from God. Upon their own impressions rather than what the Word of God means by what He has said. And in doing so, they reject the very authority that they, that the Word of God would carry upon them if they actually did receive it, they reject it. And notice that they don't act in any way as if, they, as if what they say came from God. In other words, they say, I received this from God, but they don't act in a way as if it has been received from God because how they live in this life is exactly the opposite of how the angels live. The holy angels never would do what they are doing. The holy angels would never pollute their own life. The holy angels would never outstep their bounds. Even the archangel didn't do that when he was in this dispute over the body of Moses that the scriptures don't even tell us about. No, they go the opposite. They pollute their lives with immoral living defile the flesh, they reject the God-given authority over them, both sides of it, especially those within the church. And they attempt to rebuke angelic beings. In fact, the reality is they are utterly unsubmissive to the law of God as God has given it, and the angels, who they often claim to have power over, would never do that. Angels would never do that. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say, even the falling, fallen angels would not do that because the fallen angels can only do what God allows them to do. Even Satan himself cannot do what God does not allow. They never outstep their boundary, God has hemmed them in. And that's a contrast that Jude is further describing for us here in verse 10. They do that which they do not understand. It's just simply by instinct that they do what they do. The holy angels, being so holy, out of honor for God's divine rule, surrender both themselves and their circumstances to God, would never even step out of that. Here is Michael in this in this some kind of argument going on, some kind of dispute going on with Satan himself and even Michael being the archangel, the chief angel, wouldn't even step outside his bounds and pronounce against him a railing judgment. He wouldn't do that. Not these men. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. In other words, they are so arrogant in their own ignorance, they're ignorant of the actual truth, even though they boast of having the truth. They're ignorant of it. And their life shows it. their very attempt at speaking against angelic beings proves that they're ignorant of God's divine law. In fact, go back to Ephesians chapter six for a moment because some of us may have a question in our mind as to this reality and this issue of dealing with Satan. And we hear all this nonsense from people in, religious circles sometimes you rebuke Satan, rebuke the angel Satan, I rebuke you. We see these foolish people on TV sometimes. And yet here is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, the church which is the pillar and support of the truth. And Paul is saying, okay, here's how you deal with with the things that God allows Satan to bring upon our life. Finally, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. We might even just say, finally, be strong in the truth. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or I should say it this way, be strong in the truth and in the strength you get from the truth because that's where our strength comes from because the spirit is the one who leads us in truth. Well, how do I do that? We'll put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You notice it doesn't say so that you might be able to rebuke him and he'll listen to you. It's not your job. Your job as a Christian is not to do that. Your job as a Christian is to do what God has asked you to do, just like the angels do. You don't rebuke Satan. You stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How? Why? Why? Because our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, you don't even know what you're fighting against when you think you can rebuke that. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And once again, Paul emphasizes that reality. You don't need to rebuke anybody. You just need to stand in the truth. You just need to stand firm in the truth. Stand firm, therefore, verse 14, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the blessed plate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, know the truth, gird yourself with the truth, be living righteously as you're commanded to live, and always be ready with the gospel of peace. And in addition to that, take up the shield of faith, trust God with which you've been able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. And realize what salvation means. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and preparation, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and pray for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. Listen, nowhere in Ephesians chapter 6, nowhere, are we as Christians ever commanded to rebuke evil forces in darkness. Never. No, our task as a Christian is to hold fast to the truth. That's it. You hold fast to the truth. You have conviction about the truth. You stand with conviction on what God said. In fact, listen to what Paul said to Philippians, to the Philippian believers. Just listen. Chapter two, verse 14 to 16. You can write it down, read it later, but I'm going to read it to us right now. Listen, do all things without grumbling or disputing, That's character quality in the church. Do all things without grumbling against God, without disputing with one another, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Wow, this is who we are. We 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 don't fight amongst one another. We don't grumble about what God tells us to do. We, We go about proving ourselves to be children of God who are above blame, above reproach. Because we live in a world that hates God. They need to see the light. We appear as children, as lights in the world. How? Holding fast the word of life. Holding fast to the truth. Right there is our mandate in this world. We hold fast to the truth. We hold fast to the word of life. In other words, right behavior in the Christian life always follows a right understanding of the truth. And yet, we see back in Jude's little letter to the church, We see the complete outworking of a lack of spiritual understanding. In spite of the arrogant claims of what they know, in spite of being arrogant and proud about knowing the truth, speaking as if they have the truth, the deceiver, the false, the arrogant false teachers that have crept into the church are actually ignorant of the very truth they claim to be experts about. They claim to have had visions and insight given to them by God. Even about the angelic realm, I I know about that, they say, and yet their very behavior is the exact opposite of what the holy angels would do. Proving that they actually understand nothing. They're like those in Sodom and Gomorrah who have the truth come right to them, but because of their own lust, because of the blindness by their own lust, they fail to recognize the truth when it walks right in front of them. And notice what Jude equates them to. Verse 10. They're like unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals. Uh, Can you hear the irony in in Jude's voice? Jude isn't saying that they don't know anything. He isn't saying that their intellect is completely gone and empty. He's not saying that at all. But what he does say is that what they live by is their senses of instinct, not truth. They live subjectively rather than objectively. They're just like animals. Animals do not and cannot reason. I know that might step on some of us dog lovers and cat lovers and animal lovers like that. I love animals and God's creation, but they cannot reason. Animals are not given the ability to reason. They respond to the impulses of their instincts. So does the apostate. So does the false. They have instincts about how to gain influence in the church, about how to draw people away for themselves, about how to garner a crowd unto their own desires, how to enrich their own lives through the the fleecing of those who are sadly being duped by their teaching. But They don't know the truth, even though they arrogantly proclaim to have it. They don't know it at all. And they think that through all of that, they are advancing themselves. That they are actually advancing their own lives, they think. They think they are actually close with God when they do that, but the reality is that they are heading to destruction. Notice verse 10 says that they are by these things destroyed fact, the New King James Version says it this way, in these things they corrupt themselves. In these things they corrupt themselves. In other words, what they think they understand, they actually do not understand. And what they do understand is actually leading them to an eternal hell. Talk about a a gone case for a person to think they're heading in the right place when they're heading to the wrong place all along. And why do they, why is this the case? Why are they being destroyed? I'll tell you why, because the church of God is holy. It's holy. He died for his church. Jesus Christ died for his bride, the church. And even though the world hates the church, and even though some in the church do not take it seriously, guess what? God does. God takes it very seriously. You come to the church, and you come to hurt the church of God, guess what? God will destroy you. You don't think so? Go read First Corinthians chapter 3. You come to hurt the church, you have now come to step on God's bride. You hurt God's bride, watch out. And so the apostates are dangerous to the church. They're dangerous because they flaunt their own imaginations and they boast in their ignorance. Then he gives us this third description. They're arrogant in their determination. They are arrogant in their determination. Verses 11, and this is so fascinating. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now right there, Jude describes why they do what they do. And he describes for us why their influence has such devastating effects on others. And once again, in Jude-like fashion, we get this triplicate, this this three-way comparison, if you will, taken from the history of the nation of Israel. I love that because the Bible says the Old Testament is there for our example, and Jude takes the Old Testament and uses it just as it's to be used as our example. And Jude tells us that these wolves in sheep clothing are all in some way like Cain and Balaam and Korah. He's not saying that they display all of these characteristics all of the time in all that they do, and that they will be there each and every time that you recognize a false teacher. No, but these character, characteristics in some form are what drive them. That's what he's talking about. This is their determination. This is their drive. And you notice first that he says they are like Cain, for they have gone the way of Cain. So Jude takes us all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Cain was the first murderer on this earth. Cain was the first murderer on this earth. He killed his own brother. He killed his own brother. And what was it that drove Cain to murder his own brother? Well, we could turn to Genesis chapter 4. I'm not going to do that, but you can go there afterwards. We could turn there. But I, I want us to turn actually back a couple pages to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter three, because in first John chapter three, we get a, a condensed, if you will, commentary from God on what took place in Genesis chapter four with Cain and Abel. First John chapter three, beginning in verse 11 says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. That's the message of God. Love. Think of others more highly than yourself. Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? The two great commandments. And this is the message you've heard from the very beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So what was the way of Cain? What was the way of Cain? Well, it was the way of a hate-filled heart. A heart filled with hate, a heart that operated on hate. He killed his brother because he hated him doing what was right. He hated righteousness. He hated his brother doing what God had commanded. He hated his brother actually being pleasing to God for worshiping God as God had told them to worship him. He hated the fact that God had accepted his brother's offering done as God had prescribed and not his own. Not done as Cain wanted it done. In other words, Cain hated Abel and therefore killed Abel because he wanted to worship God his way rather than God's way. He is the quintessential living expression of James chapter 4, verse 1. He wanted something and could not get it, so he murdered. So he killed, he fought. What's the source of fights and quarrels among you? Is it not you have a desire in your heart that you do not get, and so you fight and quarrel, you murder, James 4, verse 1 says. This is the way of Cain. In fact, 1 John 3 says, the world will hate you. Notice what it says. Do not marvel, verse 13, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. That's the expression of the heart of those who walk in truth, who know the truth. He who does not love abides in death. Even that juxtaposition of comparison between those who know Christ have a love-filled heart and those who do not love Christ have a hate-filled heart. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Verse 15, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay it down, lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, now he's explaining what he's talking about there, what that looks like. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, the world's going to hate you because they want a God of their own making. They don't want to follow a God of truth. They don't want to follow righteousness. And so the conflict came down to what was evil and what was righteous. Well, the wolf in sheep's clothing has gone the way of Cain. They've gone the same way. Uh, they hate what God desires. They hate what God wants. They have no true love for other Christians, even though they say they're a Christian, even though they may be in a church in some position of influence, they have no love for the church. They actually hate the church. They want to hurt the church. They know what is right, just like Cain knew what was right. Cain knew what God desired, and they hate those who do what's right. Cain hated his brother because he did what was righteous. But Jude says they've they've gone the way of Cain. And then secondly, secondly, notice he says they're like Balaam. Like Balaam, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Jude once again in the Old Testament he takes us back to Numbers chapter twenty-two through twenty-four. And he talks about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. Balaam was actually one of God's mouthpieces to the nation of Israel. And he was called by God as a seer, a a prophet, someone who spoke on behalf of God. And people would inquire of him as to what God's direction was in matters of life. They would go and say, let's go ask the prophet if we should go to war as a nation or if we should do this as a people. Why? They didn't have a Bible under their arm. They didn't have a closed canon written for us so that we have the Word of God. They had to go to a seer and, and find out what God was saying. This is why God gave the prophets. But Balaam was greedy in his heart. Balaam was greedy in his heart. And for a price, he led Israel into national immorality and idolatry. You say, how so? Well, he was asked by Balak, one of the kings of the surrounding nations said, came to him and said, hey, I want you to go and I want you to curse Israel and we'll pay you this much money if you go and curse Israel. We know you're a man of God. Well, and what you say comes true, go and speak a curse on them so that it'll come true and we can have our way with Israel. And Balaam said, you know, I can't do that. I can't curse them. And yet three times he prophesies and he's unable to curse them and he keeps going back to Balak and Balak says, well, you you, you didn't curse them and, and you should have cursed them. And three times they tempt him in this way. And yet he still tells Israel that no matter how they live, no matter how they live, no matter if they live righteously or sinfully, it really doesn't matter. They were so favored by God that nothing could affect that. Don't worry about it. You live under grace. Don't worry about it. God is is your God. You are his people. Don't worry about it. God will be gracious to you. Don't worry about the kind of sin you desire to go into or whatever I say. Balaam was greeting his heart and for a price he led Israel into this national immorality leading them that way he was for a price, leading them into error. What was the error? They intermingled with the people around them as God had told them not to do. And they intermarried with the wives of people who worshiped false gods so that those wives would carry those families off to worship other gods. Jude says they rushed headlong into the error of Balaam for pay, they do that. Some of your translations might say they abandoned themselves. They abandoned themselves. In other words, they threw themselves into this sin. And the sin was intermarrying with the enemies. The sin was was so bad that it was polluting the nation of Israel in such a way that the wives of those were leading them into worship of false gods. Listen, beloved, this is what the apostate influencer does. They're like Balaam, in the same way for their own greedy gain, for their own self personal self building up of their own monetary ways, they practice and lead others into sinful living. They don't speak about your sin against God they speak about. Sowing a seed so that you can have a blessing. Balaam was a compromiser. He did it for personal gain. And in doing so, he led others into compromise. Well, what happened? Well, in the end, in the end, God judged Israel for that sin. In fact, 24,000 people were put to death because of their own compromise against the truth that God had commanded. Balaam also was killed. And then eventually the entire Moabite nation under Balak's kingship, the nation in whom they had engaged in this intermarrying sin was wiped out. Why? Because truth matters. Truth matters. In fact, just listen to what God says in the book of Revelation chapter two to the church in Pergamum about this very issue. Revelation chapter two, verses 12 through 16, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Oh, it sounds great. Here's a church standing for the faith, standing for the truth. Yeah, that's great. But I have this against you. What? Because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You have this great church, this church that stands on the truth, and yet here you have in your midst some, some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What do they do? They keep teaching like Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was that stumbling block? That they could eat things sacrificed to idols, and they could commit acts of immorality with no impunity. God really is a gracious God. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Revelation 2, verse 15, so you also have some who are in the same way holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What's the response? What what do we need to do? He says, therefore, repent. Repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of the mouth of Jesus Christ? The truth. Sword of the Spirit. Truth matters. Truth matters. And then Jude says, finally, they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Why? Why Korah? Why Korah? Well, Korah is a figure in the Old Testament who stands out for his rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron were those who were divinely given by God as the appointed leaders of the rescued nation of Israel. God had placed them in leadership. God had put them there. God was the one who divinely gave them to the nation to lead the nation. And so Jude, what is he saying? He's reminding us and assuming that we, his readers, understand what happened with Korah. And he takes this incident out of Numbers chapter 16, and he tells us there, it says there that Korah led a rebellion, a, a, an outright rebellion against Moses and Aaron that included not just his family, but 250 other prominent men of the nation of Israel and their families. What were they doing? They were simply opposing God's leadership of Moses and Aaron. They were saying, you are not the only ones who have insight into the things of God. You're not the only ones. Everyone in this congregation of Israel is holy before God, not just you. What were they doing? They were accusing them of self-exaltation, accusing Moses and Aaron of putting themselves in places of raising themselves up over the people of God. And Moses says to them that they are not ultimately standing against himself and Aaron what they are doing verse 11 of that of number 16 he says you've gathered against the Lord you've come against God you've now begun to attack that which God loves Listen wolves in sheep's clothing do the same thing They rebel like Korah did In fact, the word Jude uses here means to dispute or to contradict. That's what it means. When he says they perished in the rebellion of Korah, that word for rebellion is to to dispute or contradict. You say, well, what what is he describing there? What is Jude describing by that? Well, he's describing the character of an apostate that, Desires to dispute or contradict and rebel against God's given authority in the church. Through his leadership. It's not as if questions can't be asked. They didn't come to Moses and Aaron with some some questions about their lack of understanding and some theological concept about leadership and how that works and how God is directing and all of those kinds of things. There wasn't this lack of understanding. That's one thing. If you come with those kinds of questions and you desire answers and you desire understanding, but that's not what the false do. That's not what the apostate does. That's not what the apostate influencer does. They want the authority, and so they dispute and they contradict in order to overrule. You say, does God take that seriously? You bet he does. What happened to Korah? Well, Korah's family and two other prominent families that are named in that very passage is, most likely the ringleaders who drew in the other 250 Families were swallowed up by the earth. God caused some miraculous event to happen. The earth opens up, they get swallowed up, and then the earth closes back up. And the 250 others were consumed by fire that came out from the Lord. Listen, beloved, truth matters. Truth matters. Rebellious disregard for God-given authority and rebellious ambition is a serious affront to God. Why? Because when someone will willfully choose to damage the church, the Lord will damage you. It's that serious. Truth matters that's why apostates, wolves in sheep's clothing, are dangerous to the church. They're arrogant in their imaginations, they're arrogant in their ignorance, and they're arrogant in their determination. Verse 12 and 13 give us one more characteristic of those who are destructive influencers in the church, and we'll save that. For next time. You pray with me. Lord, you are indeed worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our obedience. You are the truth, and therefore your word is truth. We know that truth matters to you, and therefore it should matter to us. So help us, help us, Lord, as your children to be vigilant, to contend for the truth. Give us godly wisdom, give us godly insight so that we can recognize that which is false for your judgment is upon those who rebel and your judgment is severe because you're a jealous God jealous for your own glory. And therefore we hear loud and clear the warning that you have given us through Jude. Jude, at the beginning of verse 11 even says, woe to them. Woe to them. A pronouncement of condemnation for all who would reject the truth. Woe to them. And so I pray that each one of us here right now that our hearts would be right before You so that we would do as You've commanded, hold fast, the truth. We know that you will honor your name. And it is for our Savior Jesus Christ that we ask and pray these things. Amen.